Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to start with a thread that Jogan left off yesterday, and that's the one of practice um, with a change of attitude, a change of heart, that this practice is about a change of attitude and a change of heart. That's what spiritual practice really is, transformation. And that's why we're all here today. To change or to be changed. But often we get a little scared or discouraged if the change is not exactly what we think it should look like or feel. We may have these preconceived ideas. And that's why we constantly advise people to drop their agenda, be aware of our tendencies to want to be constantly in control of a situation, or how we feel we must be totally safe all the time, have this idea of safe, or any other number of rational thoughts that keep, just really keeps us feeling separate, alone, and continuing to suffer. The practice of sashin, or retreat practice, as we know it, has a very tight container so that we are afforded this safe space to do the inner work, the inner exploration, the inner discovery of who we really are. As we settle, we can explore opening the heart, aligning the heart, mind, and body. For as we know, they're not separate, but interconnected, interdependent. But we also often feel that they're separate. I know for a long time I felt grounded and, and open, but there was a hole in between. And it took some time to work on aligning that more and more. And it's an unfolding pra practice. We may feel that our heart is closed, or it needs to be closed in order to protect ourselves, or to keep us safe, or to avoid hurt. But gratitude and generosity can be a gateway and an opening into a deeper and wider awareness. Without gratitude and generosity, there really is no freedom or liberation. One simple way, it's kind of a very exciting way to open the heart is just through the realization of all the food that's been donated to us for this retreat. Shokan said we had enough calories to feed all of us for at least two weeks. And we're only eating food that has been donated to us by generous individuals, often from people we don't even know. Let that sink in just for a moment and bring it up throughout the week. Everything we eat, morning, noon, and night, plus snacks and tea time, all come to us because of the generosity of others. And the really interesting thing is they want to support people doing spiritual practice. They're not supporting us to 
be educated or play sports or entertain. They're supporting us to do spiritual practice. What an affirmation for practice. So just that thought, can your heart open a little bit with gratitude and generosity in many forms? So please remember that every bite you eat this week is an encouragement to practice. Since we're studying Bodhidharma during this Ango period, Ango being this period about, I don't know how long it is here, but this fall period of more intense practice that ends with um, Rohatsu. So what did he say about generosity? What did Bodhidharma say about generosity? Well, there's not a whole lot because we just don't have a lot of really written information from Bodhidharma. There's a lot of legends and stories and koans and myths about the sage who brought Zen Buddhism from India to China. But here's a line that's attributed to him about generosity. He says, to give up yourself without regret is the greatest generosity. To give up yourself without regret is the greatest generosity. And then he goes on to say, to transcend movement and stillness is the highest meditation. I found that very interesting, this thought, to give up yourself without regret is the greatest generosity. And how he showed that in his actions, in, in what he did in at least the later part of his life that we know about. Also, there's some thoughts for, uh, attributed to Bodhidharma on the eighth precept, the eighth of the ten grave precepts. We say, I vow not to withhold spiritual or material aid, but to give freely when needed. Another form of generosity. Bodhidharma says, self-nature is subtle and mysterious. In the genuine all-pervading Dharma, not being stingy about a single thing is called the precept of not attaching to anything, even the truth. not being stingy about a single thing, letting everything flow. It's kind of a, a lot to aspire to, but it's part of the practice. So Bodhidharma is part legendary, part myth, but most scholars do believe that he did exist, and he's credited of bringing Zen to Zen Buddhism to China from India, and he's called the first patriarch of China. So as I said, I think we can see his generosity in his actions. His teacher, Prajnatara, who we always have to say probably was a woman, <laughs> asked Bodhidharma to go to China upon her death when she died. She said, after I die, please go to China and take Zen Buddhism to China, take this, take this Dharma to, to China. So what did he, why was he so special? That's a question. 
There were a lot of other Buddhist monks from India at the time and a lot of Buddhism in China. But Bodhidharma was the first to introduce this specific teaching that defines the Zen school. And I'm just going to read this line, these lines, just to remind us why Bodhidharma is important. This is attributed to him that Zen is a special, Zen Buddhism is a special transmission outside of the scriptures, not depending on words and letters, directly pointing to the mind, seeing one's true nature and attaining Buddhahood. This pronouncement has been regarded as the root of Zen, and teachers from early time until now have credited to Bodhidharma. Perhaps he didn't say exactly that, but many of his writings attributed to this and observing the nature of mind. Bringing Zen Buddhism teaching from India to China in itself was a great act of generosity. And one, I would presume, fit his own definition to give up yourself without regret is the greatest generosity. So I'm going to read just a little of this story. This is from Red Pine, translated by Red Pine. So there's so many different stories uh, accounting, but we'll just take this one. Bodhidharma was born about around the year 440, the common era in Kanchi, the capital of the southern Indian kingdom of Pallava. He was a Brahmin by birth and the third son of King Simavarman, Vahavarman. When he was young, he converted to Buddhism. And later he received instructions in the Dharma from Prajnatara, whom his father had invited from the ancient ancient Buddhist heartland of Mangala. He, it was Prajnatara who to also told Bodhidharma to go to China. Since the traditional overland route was blocked by the Huns, and since Pallava, where he was coming from, had commercial ties throughout Southeast Asia, Bodhidharma left by ship from the nearby port. After skirting the Indian coast and the Malay, Malay Peninsula for three years, he finally arrived in southern India around 475. Bodhidharma was old when he made this trip. He wasn't a young man. We don't know how old. Some say 60, 70, 80 years old. Bodhidharma has a long lifespan. There's been accounts that he lived to be 120, and I even saw 150 at some place. But anyhow, he wasn't young. <laughs> he had lived a whole life, and here he was, an old man, and being told to go to this country that they didn't even, it'd be like us going to Mars or something, to the moon. Go to the moon and spread the Dharma when you're 80. <laughs> and it took three years to get there. And sometimes they say he went overland, but it, then there were bandits and all kinds of obstacles. But Bodhidharma had determination and patience. When Bodhidharma arrived in China, 
In the later part of the 5th century, there were approximately 2,000 Buddhist temples and 36,000 clergy in the south, in the south of China. In the north, in the census of 477, they counted 6,500 temples and nearly 80,000 clergy. Less than 50 years later, another census conducted in the north raised these figures to 30,000 temples and 2 million clergy, or about 5% of the population. So that's a lot of Buddhism going on in, the, in China, and then he, here comes something else. Um, of course, some, undoubtedly, this included many people who were trying to avoid taxes and conscription into the army or who sought the protection of the temple for other non-religious reasons. But clearly, Buddhism was spreading among the common people north of the Yangtze River and in the south. But in the south, it remained largely confined to the educated elite well until the 6th century. So this is a wondrous and great example of generosity. He also realized that he by himself could not transmit the Dharma in China at that time. And you probably are familiar with the story of him meeting with Emperor Wu, and Emperor Wu said, look, look how much I have given to Buddhism. What does this, how much merit does this give me? And he said, no merit. And in one reading, I said it was no merit, but um, he said, well, but isn't the teaching is that if you do good deeds, then you'll have good karma? He said, yes, but you're, this is a good deed that you're doing for material or worldly gain, more egotistical. What true merit is about doing things for spiritual enlightenment and helping others in that way. So he was not accepted into China and went off and, and meditated in a cave for nine years. So what he was meditating, but he was also waiting for someone to come, for some people to come so that he could pass on the practice. He waited patiently for someone ready to hear what he had to say and to stay and study with him. This is another act of generosity expressed in Bodhidharma's patience and determination. As we contemplate Bodhidharma's generosity, giving up his life, going forward to an unknown country where people spoke a different language than he, he knew, but doing it without regret. We start to look at our own attitudes about generosity and our own understanding of generosity. So I ask you, who taught you to be generous? Or who showed you the way of generosity? We've all learned about generosity and sharing in some way. The importance of generosity may have changed throughout your life. It's probably your parents taught you about generosity. Or school, we're taught in school to share. So recall 
a time in your life when you gave something to someone and felt really good about it. Probably just pure giving. It doesn't have to be a big occasion or a big thing. Just remember how, how generosity started to develop in you. I remember giving this dime store blue cut glass vase to my mother when I was about eight years old. It was because I just thought it was the most beautiful thing in the world that I'd ever seen. <laughs> and it was just given from the heart of a young girl, an eight-year-old, with just the intention of making her mother happy. And that was one of my remembrance of generosity. And we were taught to give money to the church and give money to certain good causes. It's important to think about your own history of generosity. Have you given just the right gift to someone? Do you remember people on days that are important to them? Maybe you held your tongue or opinion and thereby gave some peace in an awkward situation. These are all forms of generosity that we have probably been told or shown how to do. Do you remember those lessons of old? Why was it important to learn to share or give? Was it to get along with the group, to be part of the family? Or is there a deeper reason to give? If our inner critic doesn't step in, the feeling of giving is just pure happiness. The inner critic can step in and say, oh, it wasn't good enough, or that wasn't the right thing, or they didn't really like it. But when you're a youngster, lots of times you can just you give with pure happiness. I remember um, at the temple, this little girl came over to me and gave me some flowers, and she said, my mom said it's May Day and we're supposed to give flowers to people. And it was just a, just a gift of some flowers from her garden. It was very lovely. Generosity, a feeling that supports true giving, temporarily release, releases us from that pain of separation. It's caused by our selfishness or our constant self-centered views. The self-centered views can be that I'm not good enough, I didn't do it well enough, all those kinds of small self-interest. Um, Here's a couple ways we can understand generosity from a Buddhist point of view. One, just what I was talking about, is as a spontaneous and natural expression of an open mind and open heart. When we are connected wholeheartedly with others in the world, it's not a matter of deciding to give. Giving simply just flows. It just flows out of us. This type of generosity is the generosity we might see with a parent and child, with good friends, with children with each other. And the, another way to look at understanding generosity is as just a practice itself, which we can undertake even if we don't have this feeling of flow of generosity. 
And that's what this, the thank you practice has been. You might have said, I'll try this and see what happens. Maybe you didn't do it at all. But it's interesting to look at what, did, what happened when you started doing thank you practice. It's also interesting to look at what happened. Why did you not want to take it up? That in itself can be a very fruitful and interesting investigation. We are products of our society and our culture. So it's interesting to look a little bit at how different groups have viewed generosity and see how it maybe has influenced us. In the Hebrew language, the closest word to philanthropy is, is I'm going to say the word, and I looked how to, up how to say it, and it was pronounced three different ways. So, tzedakah, tzedakah, it's T-Z-E-D-A-K-A-H, tzedakah or tzedakah. While the word, word is interchangeably used for charity, it also has a form of social justice provided by the donor as well as those who utilize or support to do their work and those who allow the support into their lives. As in the case with justice, the critical social responsibility cannot be done to someone. Rather, it has to be done with someone. It's part of the Jewish duty as part of their spiritual practice to provide social justice work. In Hebrew, the word meaning to give is natan, N-A-T-A-N. And in Hebrew and English, the word can be read backward and forward. So that we think about it, there's the idea to give, but it's also to receive. It goes back and forth. In the Bible, this is from Corinthians. It says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Charity is considered one of the highest virtues in, in Hinduism. Hindus are advised to cultivate generosity, to overcome their selfish nature, cultivate detachment and dispassion. The scriptures suggest that generosity or charitable nature leads to a removal of sinful karma and thereby self-purification. In Islam, the prophet Muhammad stated a man is not a believer who fills his stomach while his neighbor goes hungry. This means that you're not a true Muslim or believer in Allah if you fail to give to charity and show mercy to someone who is less fortunate than you. Confucius says, good people are generous without wasteful. They are hardworking without resentful, resentful without being resentful. They desire without being greedy. 
They're at ease without being haughty. They are dignified without being fierce. A pupil then asked, what does it mean to be generous without wasteful? Confucius replied, to benefit people based on what they find beneficial. Is that not generosity without waste? In the Native American culture, giving is not only understood to be reciprocal, but it's also an honor. As much as it is an honor to give, it's equally an honor to receive. Because it is such an honor to receive, there is also in turn an obligation to give. Thus, the Native American idea of giving and receiving is cyclical. The, this concept, the circle of giving, reflects the spiritual belief of interconnectedness and serves to strengthen existing relationships and develop new ones. The circle is a bonding experience, giving bonds one to the group and within the group. Because the individual provides gifts that allows the group to prosper, and the group provides gifts that will allow the individual to prosper. This idea of reciprocal giving in Native communities illustrates an intrinsic spiritual investment in the protection and interest of future generations. Through this cycle of giving, there is a belief in the security of the future of the community. How about Buddha? What did Buddha say about generosity? One thing he said, if you knew what I know about the power of giving, you would not let a single meal pass without sharing it in some way. I've always found this line to be very powerful and mysterious. Exactly. He says what I know about the power of giving, but this quote translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi says, Old monk, oh monks, all of you, if people knew, as I know, the results, so the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would they allow the stain of stinginess to obsess them and take root in their minds. Even if it were their last morsel, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it, if there was someone to share it with. But monks, as people do not know, as I know, the result of giving and sharing, they eat without having given, and the stain of stinginess obsesses them and takes roots in the, root in their minds. I always wonder, what did he know <laughs> about giving? What, what does he know? Well, we could take this literally as sharing food at each meal, and we symbolically give a portion of our meal as we set a bit of food on the, the offering tray. That in itself can be an opening practice, one that begins to open our minds and hearts to generosity. Just becoming aware, oh, I'm giving a little of my food to everyone to anyone who needs it.
But we could also look at this quote as nourishment that we get from practice and that we have a sharing of the Dharma. According to the Buddhist teaching, true happiness is something that by nature spreads around, naturally spreads. So we could say that we're teaching as we spread the Dharma every bit. We could share the Dharma every place. Generosity is the ideal starting point in learning how to let go of self-centered views. I said this earlier, but I think it bears repeating. And for seeing what deep joy can come from releasing whatever it is you're holding on too tightly to at any given moment. Without generosity, the mind is confined to a small, narrow view where me and mine are predominant, where me and mine rules. Generosity is the first of the six, or sometimes we say ten paramitas, or teachings of perfect realization. These paramitas are found throughout the different traditions. And the Chinese character for paramita means crossing over to the other shore. So one way we could look at this is that we are on one shore, perhaps the shore of greed and anger and ignorance, and we wish to cross over to the other shore of being liberated and free. And we can make that that journey, part of the journey, is through the practice of these paramitas. The first of which is dana, or generosity. And we can practice this every place, any place that we are. These are the practices of the bodhisattvas. So this doesn't, as you all know, it doesn't necessarily mean giving money. There's many, many ways to give and to open your heart. Just thinking of money as a materialistic way of looking at dana and looking at the dharma. I think this, this is an interesting story about it's called, There is What is Given, from Tanisario Bhikkhu. It's well known that dana lies at the beginning of Buddhist practice. Dana quite literally has kept the Dharma, dana has kept the Dharma alive over the past 2,500 years. If it wasn't for the Indian tradition of giving to mendicant, wandering um, monks, the Buddha would have never had the opportunity to explore and find the path to awakening. The monastic Sangha wouldn't have had the time and opportunity to follow his way. And we wouldn't be here today. Dana is the first teaching of a graduated discourse, the list of topics the Buddha used to lead listeners step-by-step step to an appreciation of the Four Noble Truths and from there 
to your own first step, tastes of awakening. When stated, when stating the first principle of karma, he would begin the statement with, there is what is given. There is what is given. What's less known about that statement is that the Buddha was not dealing in obvious truths or generic platitudes. For this topic of giving was actually very controversial during his time. For centuries, the Brahmins of India had been extolling the virtue of giving as long as the gifts were given to them. Not only that, the gifts to the Brahmins were obligatory. obligatory. People of other castes, if they didn't concede to the Brahmins' demand for gifts, were neglecting their most essential part of social duty. By ignoring this duty in the present life, such people and their relatives would suffer hardship, hardship both now and after death. So this produced quite a backlash and several of the samana or contemplative movements during the Buddhist time countered the Brahma's claim by asserting that there was no virtue in giving at all. We think giving has always been around, but no, there's time when they said, no, it's not, there's no virtue there. Their argument fell, and I'm sure this, this, this story is probably repeated in history throughout all different groups of people. So their argument fell into two camps at this time. One camp claimed that giving carried no virtue because there was no afterlife. A person has nothing more than a physical element that at death returns to the respective spheres. That is it. Giving thus provided no long-term results. The other camp stated that no such thing, that there was no such thing as giving for anything in the universe had been determined by fate. And if a donor gives something to another person, it's not really a gift, for the donor had no choice or free will in the matter. Fate was simply working its predestination, was working itself out. So when the Buddha, in his introduction to the teaching on karma, began by saying, that there is what is given, he was repudiating both camps. He was saying neither of those are right. The Buddhist teachings say that giving does result in both now, give results. This giving does give results both now and on into the future. And it is the result of the donor's free choice. Interestingly enough, when they ask the, the Buddha who, do, who they should give, who we should give gifts to. So if we have free choice to give gifts and giving has repercussions, ripples out, then the question would be, who should we give to? And so that was asked of the Buddha. And the Buddha said, simply, wherever the mind feels inspired, In other words, aside from repaying one's debt to one's parents, 
there's no obligation to give. This means that the choice to give is an act of true freedom. And according to Bhikkhu, um, Tenesario Bhikkhu, this is the perfect place to start the path to total release, to freedom. We have complete freedom to give how we want to give. So not just money, but of ourselves. Giving completely of ourselves. So the beginning quote that Bodhidharma said, generosity. To give up yourself without regret is the greatest generosity. That is completely our choice, completely freedom to do that or not to do that, according to our, to the Buddhist teachings. So why are we here? Why do we want to learn about generosity? The cultivation of generosity offers the possibility of transforming greed, clinging, and self-centeredness, and in a way kind of to purify ourselves, to become more whole, free from greed, clinging, and self-centeredness, as well as dissipating all the fears that are linked to these energies or states of mind of attachments, these attachments to greed and clinging, self-centeredness. So we can transform what we call poisons and dissipate them and dissipate the fear that is associated with them or linked. Generosity or dana practice is the foundation of Buddhist spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of compassion. It is a prerequisite to the realization of liberation. So keep in mind bodhidharmas and other teachings about generosity. How can you give of yourself? What are you willing to do without regret? Please continue exploring the ways of generosity, opening the heart, settling the mind, being comfortable in your own skin. Then, as appropriate, spread the happiness of the Dharma throughout with this wonderful gift of the Dharma, this wonderful and mysterious gift of generosity. <laughs> 